Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to look at a very interesting new book out from University of Utah Press. We remember, we celebrate, we believe Latinos in Utah. We'll be talking with Armando Solorsano, Director of Chicano Studies at University of Utah. First unfinished business from Thursday. You'll recall that we had several interviews from our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kovash, uh, dealing with Native American voting rights in San Juan County in southeastern Utah. There will be a, co- a case in federal court to be heard probably next year regarding uh, voting rights for Navajos and uh, Utes in that area. And John Kovash talked with Mark Maryboy, former San Juan County Commissioner, Ken Slate, old uh, crony of uh, Ed Abbey and uh, advocate for Native American voting rights, a lawyer for the Navajo tribe. But the guest who provoked the greatest amount of response was Phil Lyman, current San Juan County Commissioner. I've got a couple of responses during the program. This one came in after. Joe in Cache Valley says, Ha! Phil Lyman opens his mouth and shows the true colors of his Stone Age thinking. One man, one vote. Get with the times, Phil. Women in the rest of the country vote too. Thanks for the comment, Joe. You can continue to comment on this subject at our website, upr.org. Well, Armando Solorsano says that years of neglect and omission from historical records have taken their toll on the historical consciousness of Latinos in Utah. For a long time, many people, including a large percentage of the Latino community, believed that the presence of Latinos or their ancestors in the state was merely a 20th century phenomenon. Missing from many histories and popular knowledge was the possibility that ancestors of the Mexicans, or Aztecs, inhabited what is now Utah with their relatives. And uh, so, in process of uh, this oral history turned into a photographic book, um, he uh, says that uh, the time has come for Mexican-Americans and Latinos in Utah to reclaim their history and regain a sense of belonging to the state. That goal is the reason for We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe. Armando Solorsano is Director of Chicano Studies at the University of Utah, where he holds joint faculty appointments in Ethnic Studies and Family and Consumer Studies. Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for the invitation. We appreciate you being on with us. Uh, Very interesting history that you recount, and uh, as you also say, uh, history of Latinos in Utah, and indeed the history of Utah, is more complicated than we sometimes teach it. So we want to talk about that. I want to start, though, by... um, ripping some things from current headlines. Um, Just this morning on my way into work, I was hearing an NPR piece, and we've been hearing about this, these uh, tens of thousands of children showing up on the Texas border. Uh, They've been sent by their families uh, to to the U.S., hoping to reunite with their relatives uh, here, taking advantage of a a loophole in a law, I think, signed by President George W. Bush. Um, Estimates are that the the numbers of kids could... uh, could, could swell to, I don't know, 90,000, 150,000 by next year. I wonder what you make over all of this. I think it was something expected, um, given the present situations of the immigration laws. <clears throat> In fact, I just came back from Oaxaca, Mexico, one of the border states of Mexico with uh, Central America, and we visited a uh, center for refugee children and it's called Hijos de la Luna, the son of the moon. And these are mainly children of Central American women who cross Mexico, but they are not able to cross into the United States. So what they do is um, they look for a way of living, 
and let's admit it, some time of activities they engage in are not the most reputable. And in the process, they have a kid. But the kid faces a very difficult situation because, again, they don't register the kid with the Mexican government. They don't register um, their kid with uh, the native country, either Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, sometimes Costa Rica. So those kids are countryless kids. So once the kid get two, three, four years old, they start coming to the United States looking for the parents. It, but again, it's, it's a phenomenon that is recent in the news, but it's not recent in the reality of the life of the people. It was expected to come to the light, and unfortunately, uh, it came to the moment when it's a crisis uh, of this situation with the children. But it mainly responds to uh, the poverty situation in Central America, the politics and the policies that are going there, and sometimes uh, the lack of attention that we face in our country. Because, again, in our, in our country, we are centering on immigration, but we don't talk about immigrants. Mm. And if we continue doing that, I think the problem is going to escalate. That's you, you say we're, we're centering on the idea of immigration, I guess the rules surrounding it, but not focusing on the immigrants themselves. Exactly. I mean, because... And I hope uh, your audience understand that immigration became a matter of politics. Uh, it's an issue that both parties or the third parties in the United States have uh, um, agreed to talk or not to talk, depending on the case. But again, it's more for gaining power more than attending the people. In fact, we have the President Obama who promised us, you know, five years ago, and he will solve the issue of immigration. And so far, nothing has been done to the issue. Mm. And, and it will continue escalating again because we are not looking at the people. We are looking what is it, what policy is going to favor my party? What uh, bill is going to push me to a higher level of credibility? Which, uh, uh, which law is going to give me more power? But to me, again, that is not the way we should talk with one of the most pressing needs in our country. Now, uh, Speaker John Boehner of the Congress recently announced that uh, it looks like there's going to be nothing done on immigration um, you know, in, in, in this next Congress, that they'll punt it down the road, I guess, until after the next uh, presidential election. In the meantime, a, a, a crisis like this will grow. There, there does seem to be some desire in Congress to do something about this particular uh, crisis, perhaps uh, granting these kids refugee status back in their, their Central American countries. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, being a little bit uh, uh, negative about the whole situation, I don't think there is uh, going to be a, you know, a recent solution to the problem of immigration. That doesn't mean that the people are not solving the problem. Uh, in fact, and probably I should not be mentioning on the air, but there is a commission come, uh, from Utah going uh, to Mexico to see how they can help all these children. Because again, one of the uh, advices is, well, we need to start deporting the children. But where these children are going to go? I mean, they don't know the parents. They don't have a country as I mentioned before, what are we going to 
do with them. So it's not, we can perceive it right now as an immigration problem, but for us it's an international problem. Those are the countryless children, which will be again a new generation of uh, children who are going to grow up in a, in a very different way, more in, into an international context. But yeah, there is a lot of solutions that have been that are being implemented by the people, by the communities, by some religious organizations, and some political organizations who don't uh, release their name, but they are behind in supporting this massive immigration of thousands of children coming to the United States without the parents, looking for their parents, and also looking for the opportunity to live in peace and to live in harmony. I guess that's uh, that's one of the problems here, isn't it? This uh, situation so desperate in say, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, that parents would send their children, knowing that there are a lot of dangers, because it might be better if they're able to reach the U.S. Exactly, exactly. And again, a good number of these children are born uh, from Central American women in Mexico, and. Unfortunately, again, uh, there is no way to track them. And certainly the mother say, yeah, my, ch- my child can go there. And of course, I mean, let's be realistic. The parents know what the children, when the children are. We know that. But it's a big risk. And if you talk to these parents, they, they, they tell you, you know, I'm going to give to, uh, I'm going to give up the most valuable possession I have in my life. Those are my children. But I'm going to be doing for the for the well-being and the, whole, and the, and the well-being of the family. Mm. But again, it's an international problem based on the insecurity of Central American countries, and Mexico included, and also due to the economic conditions. I was, again, in this um, four weeks that we spent right there at the border with Oaxaca and Central, Central America. We did a survey, and we find, we find out that the income per month of these people is $200. Per year, they have an income of $2,400. I mean, what can they do the people with this kind of salaries? And with the political instability, with the situation of uh, the drugs, I mean, it's, it's just unbearable. So we see the consequences now in a new wave of immigration through the children. And we had it before, but again, because we talk too much, too much about immigration, but not to immigrants. We know, for instance, that immigration right now in the United States is very different from the immigration on the 1960s and 70s, where it was a male uh, immigration. Now, 56, 58% of all immigrants are women. It's a female immigration. It's not the same type of immigration. And we still continue acting like if we were in the 19th century mm-hmm. in the United States. This immigration is different. That's why the solutions or the absence of solutions that we are given are irrelevant. What uh, you, you say they're 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 irrelevant. But what would yes. if you had because the power? Thought, I'm sorry. If you had okay. the power, what uh, what would you like to see done? To me. Um, I will look at the United States in a different context. I will look at it in the terms of globalization. We are all over the world. And by being in other parts of the world, again, 
it has some effect for our country. I mean, if we just talk like programs like NAFTA, you know, this international agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States, the studies that we have done shows that it has had a negative impact for the population in Mexico. It has displaced more than a million people out of the fields in southern Mexico. Where are all these people going to go without the jobs? There is no place. So it's the reconceptualization of the issues of global economy, the understanding that we are interdependent, that, again, if we bring some economic contribution to our country or what call industrialization or the introduction of machines or new techniques into the agricultural field, especially um, in, in, you know, in corn, of course it's going to have impact in the people and the people with ya- without jobs. Certainly, they have to eat, they have to live, and they're going to do it regardless whether the laws allow them or not. I'm not, again, advocating for the transgression of the international laws. I'm just advocating for a legislation that takes in consideration the role of the United States abroad. If you just joined us, we are talking with Armando Solorsono. He is Director of Chicano Studies at University of Utah, an author of a new book out from University of Utah Press. We remember, we celebrate, we believe, Latinos in Utah. Uh, this, uh, I think, began, Professor, with uh, oral histories turned into photographs. There was a photographic exhibit, much visited, and uh, now a book. We'll be talking about this, and in fact... I think it's a, it's a pretty direct transition from the things we've been talking about here, immigration, the, the children um, uh, on the border of uh, Texas, and to ideas of culture and history um, that uh, we'll get into talking about uh, with the book. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. What's your perspective? 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can comment on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll, uh, I want to get perspective of Professor Solorsano on this idea of culture. I, I think that if you look at least, at least at um, some people who want strong borders and rule of law, what they talk about, um, behind that, at least in part, is this idea of culture and who sets the agenda, who writes the history, uh, who gets to determine what the, uh, the mainstream culture is, and that does get us into some of the themes of the book. That follows this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Anthropology Museum, hosting Family First, Saturday, July 5th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., presenting Madagascar, the diverse planet, animal and human populations of the island, and the environmental changes that threaten their future. Information at anthromuseum.usu.edu. I hear that old piano from down the avenue. If you were there in July of 1974 at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, for the very first broadcast of A Prairie Home Companion, you were in select company. There were about 12 people in the audience. Well, 40 years later, the show returns to the McAllister campus for an anniversary celebration, which will include a special 40th anniversary three-hour broadcast of A Prairie Home Companion. 
You can hear that on Saturday, July 5th, right here on Utah Public Radio at the early time of 4 o'clock in the afternoon, repeated Sunday, July 6th at noon. This special anniversary broadcast of A Prairie Home Companion is sponsored by Cache Valley ENT. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Armando Solorsano. He is director of Chicano Studies at University of Utah, author of a new book, We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe, Latinos in Utah. And you are welcome to join this discussion at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com, and you can use Twitter to get a comment through to us at Utah Public Radio. Professor Solorsano, I wonder, uh, maybe a good way to get into this discussion of culture and who writes the history, uh, that's part of what you talk about in this book. Maybe you could talk about uh, Mormons coming into Utah. Um, when they arrived in Utah, they were arriving in Mexico. But as things went, went along, the, the, you know, the, the sort of the dominant uh, history that you learn in schools is, is very much colored by the way the Mormons saw things. Yes. In fact, um, you talk about culture, and I grew up in Mexico. And at the age of three years old, I knew that Utah was part of, of um, Mexico. And something interesting happened when I came to Utah 22 years ago. Um, the history of Utah didn't mention that. So, you know, in your mind, you question, who is telling me the truth? The Mexicans or the people of Utah? <laughs> so you have to, uh, you have the responsibility to know the truth as close as possible. So for me, it's, uh, it was a wide opening experience. And like you mentioned, uh, in, when the pioneers entered the state in 1847, this was Mexico. So, uh, one of the articles I wrote that, again, it was apparently controversial uh, without me meaning to be controversial, I just wrote that when our brothers and sisters of the LDS religion entered into the state, they didn't ask permission to the Mexican government, which, again, is an issue related to immigration. That's what immigration is so pertinent in Utah. That's why immigration should be addressed in a very different way and with a different tone, more in the tone of understanding, compassion, and all these issues that are behind the immigration. So we have 1847 when the pioneers enter. And again, there are many options and many theories of why they want to establish in Utah. Certainly they were running away from Nauvoo, from the uh, religious persecution. Some uh, historians argue that they don't want to live in the United States because they were not protected by the federal government. It was a religious persecution against the leader, Joseph Smith, who, again, he was killed. Their properties were, properties were destroyed, so they don't want to live in the United States. They were looking for a place, a country, Mexico, where they can live in peace and practice freedom of religion. So they entered this part of the territory in 1847, and nine months later, um, they signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that put the end of the war between Mexico and the United States. Well, now Utah belongs to the United States, and now the LDS people have to decide what are we going to do, right? We don't we want to be out of the limits with the United with the United States, but now we are part of the United States. 
But now this is this is again something that we need to remember because again when we when I traveled Utah, uh, I just came from Centerville, uh, which is in north of Salt Lake City, and when you enter the city, a small city, uh, there is a plague, and it said this city was founded in 1847. Well, for me, what do you think the image that brings to my mind? Well, this is Mexico, isn't it? Legally, isn't it? But it's not a controversy that I want to put it. What I want to do is to provide information and bring the people to a dialogue, to communication, to compassion, to understanding, so we can create better communities in Utah. So the immigrants are not the other. We are an integral part of this state, and that's what my book is trying to achieve. Yes, again, um, there are a lot of issues, you know. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to deal with the Mexican government after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1948? No. Uh, and again, for me, when I see the flag of Utah, it makes me feel very proud of it because it has two dates, 1847, when is the arrival of the LDS people. But again, it's Mexico. <laughs> Legally, it's Mexico, right? And then it has the other day, uh, 1894, uh, 96, which is the day when Utah was incorporated into um, the United States, into the Union, was accepted. So again, it is a very rich history. That's what, again, my book tried to convey the sense that we belong here. Yes, we know that we are not included in the records for many different reasons. In the past, maybe for the way the issue of race. In Utah, they were only four races, but they were not the, the race of Mexicans or Latinos. They were the Anglos, the Black, and the, um, and the Japanese, that's it. So all people, the Mexican people, the Mexican-American people, the Chicano people, the Latinos, were not in one category. The majority of us were included under the category of Indians, right? And again, yeah, we belong there in that category, but we belong in another category. So it's the issue of representation for me. It's the issue of inclusion. And I really appreciate the cooperation that people have given me because my work has been almost impossible without the cooperation of um, a number of people, a number of organizations, uh, members of the LDS Church who provide me with wonderful pictures of the first Mexican uh, Mormons who came to, to Utah um, to establish the words. It's, it's a wonderful work. And it, it, like you mentioned before, it was based on pictures because uh, I interviewed a person who was 98, 98 years old and I asked him about the history of Latinos, Hispanic in Utah, and she told me, I don't have a history, I only have pictures. So I said, can I see the pictures? And he had amazing pictures, and mainly what she was doing is reconstructing the history of the state. Hmm. And based on that, because I had so many interviews, as a practice, I keep asking to the people, do you have pictures? And of course they do have pictures. And for me, it's important because sometimes the pictures speak louder than, than words. 
So when the people look at a picture, they cannot context. They cannot tell me uh, that is not true, because I cannot make up the pictures. You know, maybe some other pe- people can do it. You know, with the new uh, computer techniques we have. But to me, I maintain the picture as it is. But the picture speaks by itself, and it's open up a little bit the, the channels of communication for us and for our communities, especially in those communities who are large, largely represented by undocumented immigrants in Utah, and there is not much communication among them. Uh, we're talking with Armando Solorsano. He's director of Chicano Studies at University of Utah. A new book. Uh, we've been talking about this, uh, Photographs and uh, History. It's called We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe, Latinos in Utah. Uh, if you'd like to join this conversation, it's 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxis gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Professor, um, in another book... This one on immigration, you have a chapter here, and you said something interesting here. Um, you said, Latino immigrants who are Mormons do not perceive themselves as outsiders. And uh-huh. that, that got me thinking about it's, it uh-huh. is very important how we perceive ourselves, and a lot of times our self-perception is outsider, insider, in the culture, outside of the culture. That's a very important part of, the, of, of your current book as well. I wonder if you could talk about that. And it's mainly due to the change of the characteristics in immigration. We know that in Utah, before 1960, uh, 92% of the immigrants were Europeans and Mormons. But after 1980, the whole immigration changed. Now, we have 86 of the immigrants in Utah being Mexicans and Central Americans and Catholics. And it's an interesting phenomenon. That's why Georgetown University was so interested in our state, because they want to see the dynamics of how a state who has been predominant, predominantly LDS is accepting or incorporating this new wave of immigrants who don't share the religion. So we did this study, and, and we found Again, amazing information that, again, probably will help the people to think differently about Utah. Um, For instance, if you just look at the Latino population, the minority of the Latino population in Utah are LDS. Only 13% of Latinos are LDS. 85% are Catholics. So when I make that, uh, that statement, that um, the LDS Latinos feel insiders is because, yes, we are Latinos culturally, by, uh, phonetically, you know, language-wise. Yeah, we are Latinos, but we are different. If you are an LDS Latino, you are very different from a Catholic Latino, or from a Catholic Hispanic. So the LDS Latinos, they don't feel like they are outsiders because when they come, First of all, they come from different reasons that other immigrants come here. A large number of them come to, to study to BYU. Um, some of them come here as missionaries. Uh, some of them come here to, 
to be close to the church. So the, the Latino LDS immigration is quite different. So that's what they don't feel outside the group, because they immediately connected with the whole structure that is already in place in Utah. So they belong. Uh, they practice the same religious cultural activities. Uh, they are accepted. They know they are not going to be here for a long period of time. So, yeah, they are integrated. And most importantly to us is that in, in spite of the fact that 85% of the Latino population are Catholic, the majority of the leaders in the Latino community are LDS, which, again, happen to be the minority in terms of religion. So, again, yeah, the LDS Latinos feel like they belong they are insiders, they are accepted, which to me is quite normal. I mean, there is uh, no controversy. controversy. There is a natural phenomenon. It's a logical consequence of the people who practice the same religion, right? Mm. Uh, however, for uh, Latinos, Catholics, it's different because, again, there is not a very long-rooted tradition of Catholicism in Utah as it is in California, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, those states have a very strong, long root of Catholicism, not in Utah. So again, those Latinos in Utah have to struggle differently because again, they have first of all they uh, they have they want the religion to be validated, and they want to find institutions that talk to their culture and to their religious beliefs, and many times they are not in place in Utah. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's my statement. And again, there is um, a lot to talk about on those issues, uh, and mainly that's what my book is trying to cover. Uh, my book, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, start talking about the relation of the Aztecs with the, uh, with the youths. And again, there is this uh, new theoretical position that when the Aztecs started their pilgrimage to Mexico to create Mexico City, they started here in Utah. So again, all these historical facts help Latinos to get the feeling that, yes, we belong here. Utah is also our homeland. And and in many ways, politically, religiously, you know, because if you look at the book of John Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, it makes a lot of reference to the Lamanites. So people make connections with the Indians and us having that um, Native American or Indian background. Yeah, we feel a strong affinity. So we belong here. We are not the other. We are not immigrants. We are not undocumented. I know. People will have different opinions about this. But at the bottom is that we, as people, as community, belong here and we can create a better state, probably in a state that will mirror the future of America, mm-hmm. where people of different religions, different beliefs, different cultures, different ways of looking at history. Yes, I look at history very different from uh, my brothers and sisters of of Utah, but it's natural because the question you raise: Who write the history? <clears throat> Historically, we know this that people in power write the history. 
But again, there is the level of education and consciousness in people increases with time. So people are creating their own history, and they look for recognition with the understanding, again, that this belongs to all of us. <laughs> mm. right? I wonder... Um, the. There are some, uh, you know, I've heard in the Latino community over over the years, mm-hmm. have presented similar ideas to what you're presenting, but have presented them in maybe a more confrontational way, um, in a more threatening way, at least as perceived by the, some of the majority culture. Uh, for example, uh, you know, some have said, well, you know, reject the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, at least the results of that. Um, let's just consider Utah and Western United States still a part of Mexico, those sorts of things. Um, and, and that can be very threatening, seem very threatening to some, and I think that is an impetus for, for some who want to clamp down on, on immigration. I wonder if you could, could respond to that. There, there are some in Latino communities who, who have these feelings, and that does feel threatening to, to others. Yeah. Now, is that... We need to understand that the characteristics of the presence of Latinos or Hispanics in Utah is very different from the rest of the Southwest. At the same time, we need to understand that Utah, by the way, it was colonized. And for the type of people who was colonized by, is quite different. Utah is a non-confrontational state. Utah is a place where there is a lot of room for talking. There is a lot of room for agreement. You cannot confront because that's not in the ethos, in the way of being of the people in Utah. As soon as you confront, you put them on the defensive. And again, this is not new. I remember the time of the civil rights, the Chicano and the uh, black civil rights in Utah. That was a very hard time. Unfortunately, our history don't talk about it, don't, don't write about it, but it was an amazing time. And, I mean, I bring that issue just to tell you how do we go about it. In the Chicano movement in Utah, I know that there is a big myth of Zion. You know, that God told Brigham Young, this is the place, this is Zion, this is the place where you're going to create the kingdom of God. Well, for Chicanos and Mexican and Latinos, they also believe that this is Aztlan, the sacred land that God gave them, right? So we have two uh, histories, right, two different mythologies, two different uh, ideas working. Both of them can work, but that is the issue, but that's something that we need to bring to uh, the Latino population in Utah, it's not through confrontation. It's, it's, it's through sitting at the table and say, this is what I believe, and this is the way of putting it together. And, I mean, like the Chicano civil rights in Utah has been one of the most successful in the whole country. Unfortunately, again, we don't know much about it. Just let me give you an example. By 1965 the time when the Chicano civil rights, or the whole civil rights in the nation, um, was passed, at the University of Utah, there were only three Hispanic. Three in 1965. Then the Chicano civil rights movement came 
with a lot of negotiation from with legislators, with uh, uh, the representatives of institutions of higher education. By 1972, in seven years, we have more than 700 Latinos, Hispanic students on campus. It's the largest rate of increment of minorities in the whole nation. But we never hear about it. And I'm just going to support you, what you said. The reason we never hear about it is because we don't confront. We don't throw uh, stones. We don't burn buses. We don't take the buildings. No, there are different ways. And in Utah, what matters is the process. How do you do it? How do you approach? How do you negotiate? But certainly confrontation is not going to be the way. And again, the most recent manifestation of that was the March of Dignity that took place uh, seven years ago in downtown Salt Lake City. 43,000 people, Latinos, marching on the street, peacefully, not confronting, just asking, can we have a more comprehensive health reform, um, immigration reform? Again, it was very peaceful. It, they achieved a lot by, again, manifesting our desires of improving the situation, but not through confrontation. Again, we don't burn buses. We don't throw stones. We don't accuse. We don't judge. We say, this is our situation. This is can we need. Can we work together? And in fact, we'd, I'll say this with all pride. By 2002, Utah was an example of how to treat the immigrants in the nation. That's why there are several studies done on Utah. But something happened between 2002 and 2006 that completely changed the, the dynamics. But again, it's it has to do with what you say, tactics, the way of doing it, the way of interacting. And again, and you ask me how can I address this, I think I have done it in many different ways, but the Latino leaders have different ways of approaching um, the issue. And sometimes it has to do where the country where the Latinos are coming from. Let's not forget that even if we say Latinos, we are 22 different nationalities under that umbrella, from Peruvian, Mexicans, Guatemalan, Brazilians, Argentinians. So they have different political traditions, and when they want to implement it in, in Utah, sometimes we don't agree. We're going to take another break. When we come back, more with Armando Solorsano. He's director of Chicano Studies at the University of Utah. His book just out is We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe, Latinos in Utah. When we come back, uh, I'll ask the professor to uh, expand on this idea, this, this mythology. And uh, all peoples have their myths. Uh, as he said, uh, the LDS pioneers who came to Utah uh, had their idea of Zion that they're trying to establish uh, many Latinos, he says, would be uh, it's good to connect back and this idea of Aslan and the idea that um, some of the early um, inhabitants of Utah may well have been Aztec, the ancestors of the Mexicans. More on that and the sense of belonging and identity follows the break.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Featuring Croque Madame and Croque Monsieur, made with sourdough bread, ham, and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. This is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to come exploring with me. We're going to go treasure hunting in the Lincoln Center Library. We're hoping to find wonderful music that's just been lying unheard on those shelves for way too long. We're going to take that stuff out into the sunshine. Tuneful, romantic, creative music. That's American Masters, this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have uh, another uh, nine minutes or so left in the program. Armando Solorsano is director of Chicano Studies at University of Utah. He's author of a new book, We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe, Latinos in Utah. It's out from University of Utah Press. And uh, he says years of neglect and omission from historical records have taken their toll on the historical consciousness of Latinos in Utah. Uh, he says that they need to reclaim that history, essential part of uh, identity. Many Latinos in Utah uh, assume that uh, the history of Latinos in Utah goes back to uh, just a couple of generations. Uh, that's not the case, says Professor Solorsono. And uh, in fact, uh, I think one of the jumping-off points for for this book, this project, Professor, was this uh, lady you were talking about earlier, right? Uh, in her 90s, and uh, she said, I, I don't have a history. I have, I have only have pictures. So this is a, a response in, in part to her. Uh, so I wonder, you were talking earlier about the fact that every people has their myths, their mythology, their, their, their idea that, that plays into their, their sense of identity. Mormons have this sense of Zion, that they're building up Zion in, in Utah and anywhere they are. Um, so you're saying this would be beneficial for Latinos in Utah to understand and go back to the Aztecs, who are related, I believe, to the Utes. You see that in their language, and that Aztecs may well have lived in Utah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and again, when we talk about mythologies, is generally the people understand that a mythology is something that is wrong or is false. But mythology can also be understood as, as a series of ideas that move people to action. Without mythologies, we cannot move, we cannot go ahead. The reason why Utah was established as a state, as a Mormon state, is because the strong mythology, the strong beliefs, that it was God who told uh, the leaders of the church that this is the place. In fact, we do have a monument here in Immigration Canyon that I go visit continuously just to respect that mythology. This is the place where God uh, talked to Reagan John and say, look at the extension of the land. This is the land that I give you to create Zion, the kingdom of God on earth. Without that vision, without that mythology, without those ideas, Utah will have not been possible because Utah was created for that purpose. But we need to remember at the same time that other groups of people had the same mythologies. Uh, in the case of Mexican, Mexican-Americans and Mexicans, yeah, we do have the mythology of Aztlán, right? This is the land, this is the sacred land that God gave us to take care of. 
And again, if you remove that mythology, you break down the identity of the people. Because then there is no reason to move ahead. The reason we are working under a mythology is to make it a reality. If you ask the people, the LDS people of Utah, is this really Zion? I don't know what the answer will be, but certainly one of them will be, yeah, that's the idea on which this city or this state was built. We arrived to the point of creating the city of God on the earth. It's up to them to answer it, right? But what will happen if we eliminate that mythology? It will be certainly a different identity of Mormonism, because that is the mission in life. And remember from that mythology, they had to expand the kingdom to the north and to the south. Beautiful, beautiful images, beautiful mythology. But Aztecs, Mexicans, have do the same mythology, right? The Aztlan. And again, people don't want me to mention that, but then if I don't do that, I'm not addressing the issue of identity of the Mexican-American people. Right. Then it's an identity. Like, for instance, in one of my studies, I follow the names that uh, Dominguez and Escalante in 1776 gave to the places where they were coming in in their expedition. And all of them, without exception, are names based on religious and Catholic uh, names. But then, when the LDS enter, those names were changed. So again, that's why in Utah we don't have uh, a lot of Spanish surnames. We don't have Los Angeles, Sacramento, Arizona, like in another state. The whole geography was changed. Yeah, we have Moroni, Lehigh, but when you talk to a Latino, to a Mexican, to a Mexican-American, to a Hispanic, about Moroni, it doesn't click. But if you say instead of Moroni, the town of Los, La Virgen de Los Angeles, immediately click. So by, again, in these mythologies and in the change, what we are losing is part of the, that identity. And we have uh, several, like you mentioned before, uh, Hispanic and Latino leaders who visit our state and one of the common is, uh, you really need a strong identity in this state. And it's not that we need it. We do have it. It's just different from other Mexican-Americans and Latinos in the Southwest. Because, again, our history is very different. We were not colonized by Spaniards. We were colonized by Mormons. The Mormons didn't... A mix with the Indians, well, the Spaniards did. Well, that's why we have different type of populations. But all this has to do in these mythologies. And, I mean, the Native American people, the Indians, have their own mythology. If you look at the Wasatch Front, well, if you live here in, in Salt Lake City, for them, it's not just a mountain or the place where you go to ski. It's a sacred, a sacred mountain, right? It's Mother Earth. But that's what they believe. And we have to respect that. So probably the question at the bottom of this, and what I'm trying to do with my book, is to bring to the understanding that, yes, we have different ways of thinking, and that's what makes us beautiful, special, and different. Mm -hmm. It's in this diversity where we achieve our 
of, uh, of richness in history. In both of them, if you put these mythologies together, at the very end, they look exactly at the same thing. The coming together of people to live in peace, to live in harmony, to live in justice. And all, it doesn't matter which mythology, all of them end up in the same. And that's what I said. I don't care about the, the origin. I care about the, uh, I don't care about the point of departure. I came about the goals. And my book trying to read that, and I hope people will take a look at it. It's a very different book to start with. with, with. It's a bilingual book, and for many reasons. Again, it's in English and Spanish. I want to do it in Spanish because I want to validate the Spanish as a universal language, uh, as part of the identity. Yes, I know that in Utah we have English only. I highly respect that. But again, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gave me the right to speak Spanish in Utah, and I want that right to be respected, right? I, and I also know I have the obligation to speak English like I'm doing it now. And it can be achieved under different circumstances. And, yeah, it's, it's a bilingual book. <clears throat> it's it's going to be attracting um, a diversity of people, uh, it's, um, I want to attract the intellectuals to continue doing my work because it's a lot to do. And there are nights where I'm so tired and I say, ah, this is the end. Mm-hmm. But I want other people to jump in to help us, to not to, uh, to reconstruct because the history is already made. What I want them is to write it. Because, again, history is in the past. We just need to make it alive through books and narratives. So that, that's my, my intention. So it's bilingual. Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're at the end of our time, so that's a good place to, to, to leave it. Um, Armando Solosano is a director of Chicano Studies at University of Utah. The new book is We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe, Latinos in Utah. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I hope that people will take a look at this book. I think it will contribute to... Uh, the understanding to the communication. It, it will project a different perspective of who we are. We are not who people believe we are. We, again, we have a mission in Utah. Um, we have a goal as, as people, as a group of uh, individuals who want to contribute to the best nation in the world. And we want to, to be clear that our contributions are respected by the whole population. All right. Um, Armando Solorsano, we remember, we celebrate, we believe, Latinos in Utah. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we will have, uh, we'll revisit a conversation about the great newsman Walter Cronkite. And uh, hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Hi, this is Mark Larez Casanova from the Utah Master Naturalist Program at Utah State University Extension. The grace of sandhill cranes draws our attention when we see them in the marshes, meadows, and fields across northern Utah. As one of the tallest birds in the state, the sandhill crane is hard to miss. 
They'll glide low over farm fields with their large slate gray bodies and red caps, making them difficult to mistake with any other bird. Northern Utah is near the lower end of the Sandhill Cranes breeding range, so we're fortunate to see them. They'll arrive in Utah beginning in March and stay for the summer breeding season. Sandhill Cranes develop pair bonds for life, and their choice in mates is influenced by elaborate courtship dances. Crane dances are like awkward avian ballet, with an assortment of bows, flapping wings, and leaps into the air with wings outstretched. At times, sticks or plants are grasped with their long dagger-like bills and tossed into the air. At up to four feet tall, with a wingspan of five feet, the sandhill crane, as it dances, is quite a sight to see. Sandhill cranes are often heard before they're seen. Their loud, rolling trumpets fill the air, even for a couple of miles. Males and females call in unison as a loud duet that helps reinforce their pair bond. Once a suitable nest location is found on the ground or on shallow water, both the male and female toss plant material over their shoulders to build their large nest. As spring now fades to summer, sandhill cranes can be seen strolling through farm fields with their young colts, encouraging them to feed and protecting them from predators. While the dance of the sandhill cranes has mostly ended, their elegance hangs in our memory until next year. As Aldo Leopold wrote in a Sand County Almanac, our appreciation of the crane grows with the slow unraveling of earthly history. And so they live and have their being, these cranes, not in the constricted present, but in the wider reaches of time. A crane marsh holds a paleontological patent of nobility, one in the marches of eons. For Wild About Utah, I'm Mark Larez Casanova. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM HD1 Logan.